everybody, and welcome again to New Books in History. My name is Marshall Poe, and I'm your host. Every week we pick a recently published history book and interview its author. These are books that we find particularly interesting, and we hope that you will find them interesting as well. This week on the show we have Matt Wasniewski. Matt is a historian and the publications manager at the Office of History and Preservation at the U.S. House of Representatives in Washington. Um, He and his team there have recently produced and issued Women in Congress, 1917 to 2006. It's a mammoth book full of lavish illustrations and figures, great introductory essays, and biographies of every woman who has ever served in Congress. It's also a beautifully produced book. Um, I really enjoyed my conversation with Matt, and I hope you will as well. Here's the interview. Hi, Matt. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm doing fine. Very well. Is uh, Washington, D.C. sunny? It's sunny, but uh, a little chilly. A little chillier than normal at the end of February. Yeah, well, um, I used to live in Washington, and now I live in Iowa, and i got to tell you, the winters here, they're a lot worse. I I, I trust you on that. Yeah. Um, Today we're talking with um, Matt uh, Wasniewski. See, I did it. I told you I would do it. Yeah. (laughs) Wasniewski. There, how's that? That's, that's, that's correct. Matt Wasniewski. <laughs> he works in the Office of History and Preservation at the U.S. House of Representatives. Is that, that, is that, that am I getting this right? That's right. That's, that's right. right. And he is, I don't really know how to describe your role in this book. I guess you're the editor of this book, Women in Congress, 1917 to 2006. Right. I'm the general editor, and, and we had a team of writers in our office uh, work on the book. Yeah. So uh, it really was a team project. Well, I want to say, uh, first of all, to all our listeners, I have the book right in front of me, and it is remarkably impressive. Um, it, it's over a 1,000 pages. It's in big folio format. It has full-page, half-tone um, photographs. It is beautifully formatted. You know, it has a great cover, and, you know, for those of you that are interested in bookmaking, this thing is a remarkable achievement. It, it really you. is. I, Thank you. you know, I mean, it's, it's incredible. And, you know, the thing about it is I got it in the mail, and I said to myself, this book is going to be extraordinarily expensive. And then I discovered two things. One is it's not extraordinarily expensive at all. No, it's not. Actually, it's it's available at the government printing office um, on their website, uh, which is uh, bookstore.gpo.gov, and it's in hardcover. It's fifty nine dollars. Yeah, fifty nine dollars. In, in softcover, I think it's forty two. Yeah, I would recommend the hardcover uh, simply because those softcovers tend to break. And this one, this book, I can tell you, is in fact bound the hardcover, so it will never break, um, and you will never get a better bang for your buck than. Than that price, I, I tell you what, the ratio of uh, weight to um, sense is uh, extraordinarily good with this book. Um, and the other thing I think I noticed online, and Matt, you can correct me if I'm wrong, is I think the book's free online. Am I wrong about that? Uh, large portions of the book are available uh, on a on a website, uh, actually, uh, Women in Congress, all one word, dot house dot gov, um, and you can access uh, a lot of the profiles, the former member profiles, uh, and the contextual essays that kind of set them in generations, uh-huh. um, as well as historical data and some things that aren't available in the book. Uh, the, we in the Office of History and Preservation, we have a, a curatorial department. Uh, that collects uh, a lot of uh, uh, historical artifacts. And so we have a lot of campaign buttons uh, uh, and things of that nature in there that that weren't 
part of the book uh, image-wise. And you can kind of scroll through that and, and see a lot that's not available in the book. And one other feature that we're, we're working on putting up, part of it is up, is an educational tab so that teachers and students can uh, kind of come in and uh, pull lesson plans uh, that's great. and activities based on the different chapters in the book. That's great. Uh, just leaving through the book, I can tell you that it's sprinkled with URLs of various sorts. So mm-hmm. if your teacher are interested in this research topic, uh, it, I would highly recommend it as a first place to start. Also, I would, if you, um, do you have a little museum there for these things, or are they available to the public, this archive? Um, we don't have a we we don't have a public uh, display capacity uh, yet. Uh, we're we're thinking uh, you know in 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 late 2008 or early 2009 the new Capital Visitor Center oh, yeah. uh, is going to open up and that's a it's a mammoth project. Uh, it, it basically replicates the footprint of the the Capitol building underground on the really? east front. Wow! And they're they're going to have a, a large display area and and we've worked on. Uh, uh, exhibit text and exhibitry materials that'll be in that public area, right. and we're expecting that uh, a lot of material we've been collecting for the house collection will end up over there in some capacities. Yeah, the I, I, would, I would personally love to see it because some of the photographs in here, particularly, are just absolutely fantastic. They're so revealing of the era. And my my personal favorite is actually an election poster because it kind of dates from very early when I was coming into consciousness. I remember Bella Abzug, and you have oh, this yeah. fantastic poster of <laughs> Bella Abzug. It this, makes this, you want to vote for her right now. This woman's <laughs> place is in the house. Yeah, right. it's just a gr- it's just a great poster, and she just looks so happy. Oh, then and she's one of a number of real characters in in the book. Yeah, yeah no, you and you've got a lot of them. Trust me, we'll get to that in a moment. But first, sure. let's say uh, let's talk a little bit about you and how you became a historian. Where did you grow up, and where did you go to school? Wow, I, I kind of grew up uh, all over. I, I was born in uh, Woodbury, New Jersey, which uh, is is across the right across the Delaware River from Philadelphia. And uh, we lived in southern New Jersey for seven or eight years. My dad was in the Air Force, mm-hmm. and then he worked uh, for the FAA. Um, and we we kind of bounced around from place to place. Lived in Chicago for a while, outside of Chicago, mm-hmm. uh, Elgin, uh, Illinois, Dundee, that area. And uh, then we settled in uh, uh, northern Virginia, and um, and that's basically where I I grew up. Went mm-hmm. to most of grade school and high mm-hmm. school, and. Uh, Ended up going to to college at uh, James Madison University down right? in uh, Harrisonburg, sure. Sure. and uh, originally I I, uh, I got interested in history. Uh, I, I can't say it was my calling from day one. I, it was always an interest. I would read history books um, you know, about shipwrecks. I, I was interested in the colonial era uh-huh. and uh, uh, like to do uh, exploring and go to Civil War battlefields and yeah. and uh, well, took that's a perfect uh, place to do it. Yeah, and, and and Virginia was the place to do it. You know, we lived uh, in Manassas, not far from uh, Bull Run Battlefield. And um, it wasn't until college, and actually, I went off to Madison, and uh, I uh, my plan was to become a, a, a sports journalist. And so I I, I majored in uh, originally uh, initially in uh, in print journalism. Mm-hmm. And uh, about halfway through school, I, I had finished a lot of the coursework for that, and I had a roommate who was a history major. Um, and I had taken some history courses, and he said, you know, you can actually double major. It's not hard to do, and uh-huh. you, should, you should try and sign up. And I ended up taking a, a course with a, a professor named uh, Skip Heiser, and uh, 
uh, he uh, he kind of taught uh, Gilded Age uh, era business uh, labor, yep. and uh, he taught a methods course uh, on how to write a history paper, uh-huh. and that just pulled me right in. Yeah, uh, and I ended up uh, double major in in, uh, in in history and communications, and uh, I did go write for a newspaper for a few years as a as a sports editor, and then came back to graduate school uh, actually for an MA at uh, James Madison, mm-hmm. and uh, then went to the University of uh, Maryland for PhD work. Yeah, uh-huh. well, if we could just go back to Skip for a second, I sure. You know, I talked to a lot of historians, and there's always somebody like Skip in every historian's background. My fellow was named Dan Kaiser at Grinnell College, where I went here in Iowa, and oh, okay. you know, I was kind of a lost soul and uh, I played basketball. That was my, I didn't want to be a sports journalist. I wanted to be a sports hero. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was becoming abundantly appen- apparent that I was not going to be a professional basketball player um, as, if, <laughs> as if that wasn't abundantly apparent in high school. But anyway, I met this fellow like you met Skip and you know, it just really lit my fire. And I, right. I then knew, I pretty much knew what I wanted to do then. And I'm particularly blessed because I'm still in contact with Dan, you know, mm-hmm. and so that's good. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so I just wanted to sort of touch on that that skip story because it's very typical of many historical careers. Um, so then you went on to the University of Maryland. Who did you study with there? Um, well, I, I ended up uh, working with a couple different people. Uh, I, uh, I, I went in, uh, really was interested in U.S. foreign relations uh, at that point, and uh, ended up working with uh, a man by the name of Shu Guan Zhang, who uh, kind of did uh, East Asia mm-hmm. and uh, uh, U.S. relations uh, during the Cold War. Mm-hmm. And uh, as I put together a dissertation committee, I, my, my master's thesis at James Madison had been um, on uh, Walter Lippmann, the uh, syndicated columnist uh, and, and a, a, uh, a commentator, critic of, of a lot of uh, Cold War policy. Mm-hmm. And I, I continued that uh, in, the, in, the, in the dissertation phase. And I ended up working with uh, also with uh, Keith Olson, uh, who uh, he was a professor of uh, 20th century uh, political history at University of Maryland. That's a great program, and, uh, though. I mean, it's a good program to go to if you don't quite know what you want to do because it's enormous, isn't it? I mean, they have many, many people. There. I have a couple of friends in the department. It's it, it's a big department, and I'll tell you what drew me. I, I, I also looked at, uh, oh boy, uh, University of Missouri-Columbia because uh-huh. they had a very good journalism right, program as well, and I wasn't quite sure which way I wanted to go. And yeah. what drew me was the University of Maryland uh, just a year or two before I started – uh, the uh, National Archives opened up its uh, branch second there. branch. Yes, at, I know uh, about this. Yes, uh, almost on campus, yes. uh, about a mile away from exactly. the main part of campus. Yeah, and uh, all the 20th century records um, were, were going to be housed out there. What a and boon. that that just yeah, that no, sold me on it. Yeah, no, yeah. no, we don't have that here in Iowa. <laughs> <laughs> we have the records of the. Uh, Iowa State government, I think. Maybe. I'm not sure. We even have one, those. <laughs> one of the advantages of, of, of living, uh, living near the nation's capital. Yeah, no, so. that's exactly right. In addition to the Library of Congress and everything else, all the other fantastic resources they have in the area. Yeah, no, right. it's, a, it's a top-notch program, and, and obviously with re- resources like that, it's, it's just almost, a, it's almost too good to be true. So that's terrific. So then um, you wrote your dissertation on Lippmann. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, uh, I, I was very interested in his commentary on uh, the Cold War, um, and 
So it really wasn't a biographical approach uh, that had kind of been done. Um, Ronald Steele had published uh, a major biography on Walter Lippmann in the early 1980s and was a National Book Award winner. And, but a lot of materials had come open, uh, especially from the Vietnam era uh-huh. uh, uh, at, at archives. Um, were were uh, officials were of course very interested. Lippmann was was a uh, you know a, a shaper of, of public opinion. And so the dissertation kind of looks at him through a couple different uh, perspectives, uh, how officials try to uh, bring him on board to support policies, uh, how they tried to blunt his criticisms. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I focused in on, on, uh, on U.S. policy in, uh, in uh, Southeast Asia, yeah. although Libman really was a critic of American policy, Cold War policy across the board. Mm-hmm. Uh, he kind of felt that uh, you know, he, Lippmann was, was, is typically def- defined as one of the, the, the two or three principal uh, you know, realists of, uh, of of mid twentieth century American history, and, and he kind of felt that all foreign policy needed to to balance power and commitments, and he more often than not thought that U.S. foreign policy was was out of balance. And um, but I, I really did focus in on on Southeast Asia and uh, and Vietnam, and it's 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 a long period for for twenty years. Lippmann was was very critical of American policy and, and against. Almost any kind of intervention, uh, military uh, uh, or uh, or economic, uh, in in uh, in Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's fascinating because there there are a couple things that I you know churned up as I was working on it. Uh, in terms of how Lippmann shaped foreign perceptions, uh, how he kind of interacted with the British and and French diplomats, who in turn shaped his opinions about what was happening in mm-hmm. Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was kind of an interesting running dialogue between Lippmann and uh, the famous uh, uh, French columnist uh, Raymond Daron. Mm-hmm. Uh, Aron was a very hardline uh, a cold warrior who uh, mm-hmm. who supported uh, uh, American intervention in uh, in Southeast Asia in in, uh, in Vietnam and uh, and and Lippmann and he uh, and George Kennan actually the other the other realist yeah. uh, and the father of containment actually had a kind of a three way discussion going on in, in in major newspapers and journals at the time with Aron I did not I did I had no idea about that I really mm-hmm. did not. So um, then, after you finished your work on Lippmann, you um well, I I, uh, I actually uh, I finished my coursework at the University of Maryland and was ABD and working on my dissertation. Yeah. And uh, I, I had come down often to 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 downtown D.C. to work at the Library of Congress right. or National Archives, uh-huh. and and I, I was looking for a part-time job actually to to kind of uh, make so, ends meet. As so many people who are ABD do. <laughs> and uh, and I, I, I ended up uh, uh, getting uh, involved with an organization called the U.S. Capital Historical Society, which oh. was a, a nonprofit founded in the 1960s uh-huh. that promoted House and Senate history, capital history, before oh. the House or Senate ever had historical offices. Is that right? Yeah, uh, it was actually founded by uh, 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 an Iowa congressman uh, by the name go. of uh, Fred Schwengel, who was a high Schwengel. school history teacher. <laughs> All right. And uh, and and Fred started up the society in the early 60s at about the same time the White House Historical Society 
he started up, mm-hmm. and he put together a guidebook for for the uh, Capital Historical Society, oh. and uh, and it kind of took off, uh, and uh, and so the, I, I ended up working at, at the Capital Historical Society, what, on what was originally a part-time basis as an associate historian and a communications director for uh, right. for three years, uh-huh. four years, and. Uh, and then uh, in 2002, um, the uh, Office of the Clerk created uh, an Office of History and Preservation in the House. Mm-hmm. And uh, I saw the job advertised, and right. they were looking for someone to, to come in and edit a series on minority groups in Congress. Uh-huh. And uh, I made the transition, and uh, it's uh, it's uh, been a wonderful place to work well, that's, uh, over that's, here in the House. That's terrific. You know, I, as I reflect on my own experience – in and out of the workplace, and I talk to other historians. Again, this kind of goes back to these commonalities among historical careers. There is a kind of a right place, right time moment in every one, and you never can really anticipate what it will be. But I know, again, in my career and the careers of so many people who do histories, that just you kind of find yourself in the right spot, and the next right thing to do appears pretty obvious. And again, you know, the Office of History and Preservation opening up in 2002 while you're working for this organization, I think somebody was trying to tell you something. I mean, obviously, it took your own, it took your own initiative to do it, but right. I, I think it's terrific to take those kinds of opportunities because I think too many historians think to themselves, well. I'm going to be a history professor come hell or high water. Right. And and I really, you know, I was one of those people myself, and I didn't look for other opportunities early in my career. But um, had I to do it again, obviously hindsight is an excellent tool, I certainly would look for things like this. And I pitched to my students here at Iowa careers in government service and in government history uh, all the time. Maybe you could just say a few words about what the Office of History and Preservation does. Sure. sure. We're, we're under the Office of the Clerk, and the Clerk is the uh, the chief records keeper of the House. It's a it's a appointed position, uh, and uh, it's been around since 1789, so from the very beginning for the Federal Congress. Uh-huh. And uh, our office uh, does three things. Um, uh, we have a history function, which uh, collects statistics, biographical information, uh, produces analyses. Uh, we have an oral history program. Uh-huh. We uh, put up a lot of historical information up on the clerk's website. Mm-hmm. We also maintain a database uh, called the Biographical Directory of Congress, mm-hmm. uh, along with the Senate Historical Office. Mm-hmm. We, we take care of the House members, and mm-hmm. since we've got, you know, four-fifths of them, uh, in the in the biographical directory, eight thousand people or so mm-hmm. with house well ten thousand people with house service, and then mm-hmm. uh, you know the, the Senate's got another uh, close to two thousand. Mm-hmm. Um, we uh, and, and then we have two other departments. We have a curatorial department that that uh, manages the house collection uh, of fine arts and uh, also artifacts, mm-hmm. um, and it ranges mm-hmm. everything from portraits to campaign buttons. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Um, and we also have uh, an, an archival uh, staff that uh, processes official house records and committee records and prepares them uh, for uh, transferral to national archives mm-hmm. and also advises members on how to, uh, uh, you know, when they go to close their office, uh, on how to uh, kind of preserve their papers uh, and get them ready to go to a, a repository. That is an expansive brief. 
<laughs> yeah, <laughs> you guys must be very busy. Yeah. That's we, all I we, can say. <laughs> we are. We, we've we've got a staff of twelve people, and uh, <laughs> twelve and, uh, people. We're, we're, I was expecting you to say one hundred and twenty. Well. I mean, I think about what I do, and it's about two things. You know, you just rattled off about forty. <laughs> there are definitely more people in my office. Do they let you guys sleep, or they let us leave our, our our desk occasionally to go out for lunch? That's, that's absolutely astounding. And where exactly are you located in Washington? We're located uh, on Capitol Hill. We're in the, the Cannon uh, House Office Building, which yeah, is uh, the uh, the oldest house office yeah. building. That's great. That's really yeah. terrific. It's very. It's, it's really. It's, that sounds. That sounds really. It's, I mean, it's a wonderful historical career. I. You know. Again, I. I envy you, and. Uh, you know. I, I. I. You know. I think that you. You provide a kind of a model for people that want to take a history degree and then move it into government service of some sort. Do you guys have? Let me just ask one more question about the sure. office of history and preservation, since I'm always out. Uh, I'm always looking out for uh, the interests of my students and everybody else's. Do you guys mm-hmm. have an internship program? Oh, we're, we're, we're hoping. We're working on that. Yeah, that's good. Well, <laughs> let me give you my email after we're done talking. Okay. And you, can, you can get in touch with me because I have some interns for you. There, there are a number. It won't, you, oh. it won't cost you anything. Okay. Yeah. On that topic, there are a number of, of, uh, of places uh, in, in, there's, uh, in, in D.C. For, for people who want to come do internships. Yeah. National Archives is a great resource, yeah. too. So I encourage your students to look. Yeah, no, I absolutely will. No, and I, and I, you know, I always try to tell them that there's a whole, especially in Iowa, there's a whole big world out there. And you, know, mm-hmm. you just need to go and meet people, get in contact with them, call them on the phone, talk to them, and network a little bit. And you'd be surprised. You find out that uh, you know, the Office of History and Preservation just opened an office in 2002, and you're Johnny on the spot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. You're off to the races. So now let's um, let's turn to the book itself. This brick of a book, Women in Congress, uh, 1917 to 2006. Why don't mm-hmm. you tell us uh, a little bit about its origins? How did it come about? Well, it, it, it has a, a pretty long pedigree. It's actually the, the third edition uh, of, of of Women in Congress. Um, the, the first edition was published in uh, 1976 as part of the U.S. Bicentennial. And uh, the, what the prime mover behind that was, was Lindy Boggs, a uh, congresswoman from uh, Louisiana who had uh, succeeded her husband, Hale Boggs, mm-hmm. uh, who was a, a majority leader in the House. And he he passed away in, a, in an airplane crash. Actually, the airplane disappeared, and they never found it. Um, and she was a great proponent of house history, and so she pushed to have a, a book on uh, women in Congress published. Mm-hmm. And um, at that time, uh, there probably were had been 60 women who had served since uh, Jeanette Rankin, the, the very first mm-hmm. in 1917. And it was a, a fairly small booklet. Um, they did a second edition in 19 – it was authorized in 1989 uh, for the bicentennial of the House of Representatives, mm-hmm. uh, Congress. Uh, and um, that was uh, published in, uh, I believe, the early 90s. And uh, again, it was uh, fairly short biographical uh, presentations and, and pictures and um, in uh, in the early 2000s, uh, there was another print resolution for yet a third edition, and that was actually passed before our office was created. Mm-hmm. A series of events, our office inherited the project, mm-hmm. and uh, it's really the first thing I came in and started working on right? um, in 2002, mm-hmm. uh, almost immediately. Um, and what we what we were aiming to do was to uh, expand the coverage on individuals and to uh, bring them in. Uh, the previous books had had introduced people in alphabetical order and 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 without uh, uh, any kind of context. You you were just reading biographies, and what we wanted to do was kind of set the scene by uh, creating uh, contextual essays 
that would uh, explain what was happening in the House or the Senate, mm-hmm. give give a sense of institutional history, mm-hmm. uh, talk about some of the big social, political changes going on in American society, mm-hmm. and then introduce these people in chronological order. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also wanted to, to bring in a little bit of political science and kind of merge political science with history and, and uh, you know, introduce people to the fact that there's a Washington career that's happening, but there's also a career out in the district or in the state. And so the profiles of these women, um, the former member profiles range roughly from, oh, there are a couple one-term widows who succeeded their husbands, and, and they might be 800 words. Mm-hmm. Some of them, for someone like Margaret Chase Smith, might range up to 3,000 words. Mm-hmm. But in each one, we kind of followed a standard format where we, we set the, the the stage, what was happening in the district, what was happening in the state, um, You know, who were the circles of supporters uh, for these women, mm-hmm. and uh, how did they, what were the issues that got them elected, and, and then focus on their Washington careers. Uh, mm-hmm. What kind of committee work did they do? Mm-hmm. What were their uh, legislative interests? How did they fit into an institution, especially for some of these early women who, you know, they they were viewed as oddities and yeah. uh, kind of media curiosities? Yeah. Um, I was sort of and, wondering where the early ones went to the bathroom. I mean, <laughs> undoubtedly there were no facilities for them, right? I mean, what? There were no facilities close to the House floor for, or the Senate. Well, the Senate floor until the 1990s, uh, oh the House until the 1960s. Oh uh, there, there were bathrooms, but you had to go. You had to take a hike. <laughs> what about laws concerning public accommodation? I don't know what yeah. they were thinking. You know, it's a great <laughs> irony that they can't even provide a toilet for a woman in Congress. You know, <laughs> public accommodation everywhere. So let me um, actually delve into the book just a little bit. At, sure. Let me ask a preliminary question, though. Has there been a – is there a historian of or has there been a history of women in Congress? Is there a monograph or a book you could rely uh, on? Uh, there have been a couple books uh, that have uh, tried to kind of capture people in snapshots. Um, there was a book published uh, in the early 70s by an author named Hope Chamberlain, which uh, the title is eluding me now. It's okay. Women in Congress, some mm-hmm. variation of that. Yeah. Um, there, there is a, uh, a political scientist who did a lot of work on um, – women in Congress, particularly um, widows who succeeded their husbands. Uh, his name's uh, Erwin Gertzog, mm-hmm. uh, and he published a book called Congressional Women, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, I believe came out in the ni- mid-1990s and yeah. has since been updated. Uh-huh. And um, But it's, it's, it's somewhat scattered. You know, the, the field of women's history really came into its own in the late 60s, 1970s. Right. And so what we found in putting this book together was that there were uh, a lot of uh, secondary sources. You know, there would be an A and B entry or a current biography entry for certain people, yeah. but there weren't full-blown political biographies. Right. That's changing a little bit. In the in the 90s, we've seen more uh, scholarly political biographies. Uh, Millicent Fenwick, Ruth right. Hannah McCormick, uh, Isabella Greenway, a congressman for a congresswoman from uh, Arizona in uh-huh. the 1930s. Uh-huh. But it's it, but there are still a lot of gaps out there. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. So you divide mm-hmm. the history of women members of Congress into four eras. 
I'm looking Correct. at the book right now, four. Could you describe each of those eras? We could simply go from one to another. The first one uh, sure. in Chapter 1 is called I'm No Lady, I'm a Member of Congress, Women Pioneers on Capitol Hill from 1917 to 39. So what makes 17 to – I mean 34. What makes 17 to 34 a distinctive era? Well, it's 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 a group of uh, roughly 20 congresswomen, and uh, that that era we kind of defined as a as, as the pioneer era. Uh, these were women, uh, beginning with Jeanette Rankin in, in 1917, um, who was in for a term, and then out until uh, 1941. She came back for another term. She's wow. the only only member of Congress to vote against both world wars, oh, really? uh, and the and the the only member to uh, uh, in to vote against uh, the declaration of war uh, on Japan in 1941. Right. Yes, fascinating woman. She's a Republican from from Montana, uh, a major suffrage figure uh, in the teens. And uh, after she left Congress the first time, she became um, uh, a major um, figure in the in the pacifist movement, the international pacifist. Yeah, movement. I was going to say I have to ask because it simply it simply demands the question: Why exactly didn't she want to vote for war against the Japanese after they had well bombed Pearl Harbor? Right. She was she she believed in in uh, in pacifism foursquare and, and right. stood stood by her principles. There you and, go. Uh, and 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 voted against war, uh, despite uh, there's a great story behind that, which we we, we subsequently uh, found out in one of our oral histories. We interviewed uh, this was after the book was completed. We interviewed uh, the the longtime uh, reading clerk of the House, and in the old days, you know, the House now when they take a a vote. Uh, they generally do it by electronic device. But in the old days, before they had a voting board, they had a, a reading clerk who would read the roll. Mm-hmm. And Congressman Allen, and you know, Congressman Allen would give his vote. And uh, and this man by the name of Irv Swanson uh, was reading the roll call uh, on on the day of the vote, December eighth, nineteen forty one, and distinctly remembered Everett Dirksen, who was then a a, a young uh, member of the House, later go on to the Senate. Uh, he's from Illinois, uh, and who who was a friend of Rankin's, uh, come up to Rankin on the House floor, and tried to convince her to vote present really? for 10 or 15 minutes wow. and couldn't get her to do it. Wow. And, uh, and she, she, she actually tried to get recognized by Speaker Rayburn wow. uh, and, and to start some kind of uh, debate uh, about really? uh, the war resolution, and he wouldn't recognize her. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's one of these memories that comes through oral histories, and it's, it's, it's a great thing. That's an incredible yeah. story. What a great kind of vignette. What a remarkable woman! I mean, the courage that it must have taken to do that. Uh, she was, she was, and 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 uh, she was uh, even to the end. Uh, she she toyed with the idea of running for Congress in the late 1960s, early 1970s. My God, so the that woman she lived forever. So that she could, so that she could try and end U.S. Uh, involvement in Vietnam. That's right. uh, a fascinating figure. And there are there are some good biographies of uh, of Jeanette Rankin. So these Congresswomen um, from 1917 to 1934, uh, what percentage of them um, came in as a result of being um, widows, and what percentage of them were elected? Um, roughly half of them uh, were widows. I believe it was nine of, of the twenty, so a, uh-huh. a large number. And 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 the widows' mandate, uh, it, it, as it's been called, uh, it, it was a, it was a very convenient thing 
particularly in, uh, in, in House races. In, in the House, you have to have a special election. When a member dies or retires, uh, they, they have to call a general election to uh, find a successor. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the Senate, you can appoint, and, and, and that makes it a little bit easier. But a lot of these women uh, – the, the, the main factor for the, going for them was name recognition. Yeah, sure. so they had their husband's last name, right. and party leaders in the district would often you – know, especially if it happened a couple months or weeks before a general election um, or even a primary, would tap them and, and expect that they would hold the seat right. uh, for partial term or part of uh, – or, or maybe one full term, and then they would gracefully step aside when mm-hmm. – Local political leaders had found a, a suitable male candidate right. um, for the position. What's interesting, though, is that a number of these women, who um, who were uh, who were uh, widows and were elected, stayed for a very long time. The, the, and the front cover of the book uh, is a picture of Edith Norris Rogers from mm-hmm. Massachusetts, mm-hmm. and she was elected to the House in uh, 1925. Uh, she succeeded her late husband, John Rogers, who was uh, chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee. And uh, she had quite a reputation even before she came to the House as, as an advocate for veterans mm-hmm. uh, and, and World War I servicemen. Mm-hmm. And uh, she, su- she surprised a lot of people by staying for a very long time. In fact, she, she served for 35 years. Wow. She's the longest-serving uh, congresswoman uh, in, in congressional history. She chaired the Veterans Affairs Committee at a time when very few women chaired any committee. Um, so she's she's a fascinating figure, and, there, and there's there's some of these widows stayed on for a very long time. Margaret Chase Smith is another uh-huh. uh, good example, uh-huh. um, and uh, but a, a, a good number also left after a term. How, how so. were how were women treated on Capitol Hill in this early era, seventeen to thirty four? In the early era, it's it, it's interesting. Uh, we, we relied on a lot of uh, really great historical newspaper. Uh, uh, stories and in, in, in interviews and and it seems like they were treated really uh, as I mentioned before as, as kind of curiosities and oddities. Yeah. No one really quite knew what to do with them. Right. And um, I think overall, because so many of them had succeeded their husbands, there was kind of a familiarity and uh, you know a knowledge of them, and and they were. Uh, treated respectfully but somewhat pushed to the margins uh-huh. um and and there's some interesting women in here the the title of that first chapter uh, I'm the lady I'm a member of congress yes. and is that, that's Mary Norton who who was elected in 1925 uh uh-huh. she was the first democratic woman elected to the house uh-huh. and she really set the tone for that first generation and into the second generation too. She really tried to minimize gender differences mm-hmm. uh, and tried to uh, convince women that uh, you know, pushing women's issues wasn't the way to work your work as a group into the, the power base, into, right. the, into the system, and that you, if you minimize gender differences, if you, uh, you, know, you didn't wear uh, you know, beautiful dresses onto the floor and you didn't wear frillies and hats onto the floor, and mm-hmm. if you didn't let the men let you into the elevator first and mm-hmm. you insisted on being called congressman, mm-hmm. um, that eventually uh, the, the, 
people would begin to forget that you you know were actually a congresswoman and that and that you could just work your way through and address legislative issues that were important to you by working your way into the power structure, gaining seniority, uh, becoming a, a chair of a committee. Uh, Mary Norton's interesting because she chaired four committees, including the Labor Committee mm-hmm. in the late 1930s mm-hmm. uh, and, and presided over some important New Deal legislation. So you mentioned they were called – they were actually called congressmen? Some of them insisted on being called congressmen, uh, <laughs> which which is a little bit jarring. Uh, another one uh, was Frances Bolton of, of Ohio, who was another widow who was elected in the late 1930s, succeeded her husband Chester, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and served until the late 1960s. Mm-hmm. And uh, yes, yeah, so a lot of them did to. to just minimize gender differences across the board, especially in that first and second generation. That's interesting. So, well, yeah, so I'm glad you mentioned that. Take us on to the um, second generation, and the title of that chapter is On to the National Stage, Congresswoman in the Age of Crises, 1935 to 54. What was distinctive about that era? Right. It, it's really, you know, the, the, the pioneer era uh, had had uh, subsided somewhat, and, and, and uh, the public and, and uh, male members on Capitol Hill were, were more used to Having women around, uh, and and really, women embark on a on a two three decade uh, apprenticeship, uh, in which they uh, basically go to work by gaining seniority, working their way up the the committee ladder, uh, getting better committee assignments over mm-hmm. time. Uh, Margaret Chase Smith, who came into the House in 1940, uh, won a, a plum uh, a committee assignment. Uh, on the uh, on the Naval Affairs Committee, mm-hmm. um, Claire Booth Luce, selected from Connecticut mm-hmm. um, uh, in the in the mid uh, 40s, uh, got a seat on Military Affairs, mm-hmm. and it, it's interesting. You know, we we've kind of found uh, with women in Congress, we're we're now working on a book on Black Americans in Congress. Oh. That's another subject. Um, is that um, wartime uh, offered a lot of opportunities. Uh, for these minority members. And, and in World War II, largely out of recognition for uh, women's participation on the home front and what women were contributing, uh, these congresswomen were given greater positions of responsibility right. and, and better committee assignments right. um, that allowed them to exercise more influence. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is really a, a long period where, where women are kind of working their way through the system. There, there really aren't uh, a great number of them, uh, uh, probably at, in the 1940s, you're talking anywhere between maybe a dozen and 16 mm-hmm. women serving at any one time in so both a, the House. that's a very Senate. moderate increase then from the first era. Yes. Uh, There's no it, great it, takeoff of women in Congress in the 1930s. No. Yes, right. No. Um, yeah. And, and, and 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 that doesn't happen till till much later, really. Yeah. Um, so this is a group that really kind of works their way, and and they're still largely pursuing this this kind of purposeful integrationist uh, strategy uh, uh-huh. across the board. There's uh-huh. one congresswoman uh, who was elected from Connecticut who summed it up. Uh, her name was Chase Woodhouse. Uh-huh. Um, a university professor in economics who, mm-hmm. who got into a political career, wow. and and she said none of us were women's women. You know, we 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 right. we would address issues that were important to us and to our constituents, but we weren't pushing a women's issues agenda. Yeah, that's per a very, se. that's a very eloquent and meaningful phrase. None of us were women's women. Yeah, I mean that, mm-hmm. that really does say a lot and very cleverly, I think. So then let's go on to the third era. 
which encompasses 1955 to 76, and I can almost remember 1976. So um, <laughs> it'll become more interesting. Bella Abzug. Uh, mentioned Bella Abzug. So what is distinctive about 1955 to 1976? It's a transitional generation. It's, there's really kind of a, a changing of the guard that's going on here. Um, you, you have a lot of the old integrationists, uh, these women who, you know, are, again, are, are, are promoting this idea that you, you fit in and, and you don't stress gender differences mm-hmm. in women's issues. And they, they slowly kind of go by the boards. Um, women also are getting uh, much more prominent uh, committee assignments. Um, this, they're, they're now entering a phase where the, their apprenticeship is, has moved on to a, 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 a level where they're gaining more responsibility. Mm-hmm. And uh, you have women getting onto committees uh, that are of the, the, the first rank, really. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and a couple of them, just to, to name a few, uh, Martha Griffiths uh, of Michigan uh, is the first woman uh, to, to get a seat on the, the Exclusive Ways and Means Committee, mm-hmm. which uh, perennially, year in, year out, is, is, is the, the committee that uh, one of the two or three most attractive committees uh, in the House. Mm-hmm. Uh, it sets uh, tax policy and revenue policy, right. and she, she gets on in the, in the early 1960s. I was about to say they're the money men, but I guess they're the money people. The money, <laughs> the money, the money women. Yes, exactly. And um, hmm. it's a fascinating era. You, you have these women who were elected in the mid 1950s. Um, Griffiths, uh, Edith Green, who was a major proponent for uh, education and late in her career, uh, kind of uh, equal treatment of women in higher education. Um, and Koya Knutson. Uh, all, the, all three of those were elected in 1954. Mm. Newton's interesting. She's, she also is a transitional figure. She was elected from uh, a dist- rural district up in Minnesota mm-hmm. and had a very promising congressional career. Mm-hmm. Uh, she had uh, uh, come up through the uh, Democratic Farm Labor Party mm-hmm. and uh, had really made some inroads in the state. And by the time she got to the House, she really – had a sense of how she could move legislation through. Mm-hmm. She was um, uh, important in getting a, a provision into the um, the National uh, Education Defense Act, mm-hmm. uh, which was passed after Sputnik, where mm-hmm. you, you had the beginning of grants uh, for uh, graduate studies and, and college studies. Um, you know, to, to kind of promote work in the uh, in mathematics and the sciences. I should I should probably also ru- uh, sort of Russian history and Russian studies. So I have her to thank for much of my academic career. <laughs> I didn't even know it. And she's uh, a, a very a very interesting figure. But what was most interesting was her. Her career was essentially sabotaged by political opponents huh. who and her and her husband, who. Uh, Claimed that she was uh, having uh, an extramarital affair with a staffer in Washington, mm-hmm. and it a spurious accusation, uh, but it it sank her political career right. because of social expectations about what the role of a woman was right. when it came to balancing family responsibilities with a career. Yeah, and uh, she, she, in a lot of ways, she's a tragic figure yeah, because no, she, like she, she could have been in the house for a very long time and, right. and had a promising career and, and, and gone other places as well. well and so you have yeah. women, you have women like that in the early part of that period, and by the end, uh, you know, you're you're talking about a, a different group coming in, and and this is really it's kind of a feminist wave 
that is coming out of the, the, the women's rights movement in the late 1960s, early 1970s. Yeah, talk a little bit about those people. Yeah, Patsy, well, the, one of the interesting ones is uh, uh, Patsy Mink, uh, who was elected from uh, the district in Hawaii. Hawaii, that's um, right, yeah. And, uh, and she's, uh, she certainly fits into that mold. Uh, Bella Abzug. Uh, <laughs> my, from, my favorite. <laughs> from a Manhattan uh, district. Uh, and and it, Abzug is interesting. This, this whole core uh, of feminists, uh, Shirley Chisholm, the first African-American woman elected I remember, to, I remember to Congress. Just to, just to um, digress for a moment, I remember mm-hmm. when I was growing up in Kansas and seeing Shirley Chisholm. Mm-hmm. And not really quite understanding how a black woman could be in Congress. I remember just like, hmm, that's very interesting. And later she became one of my heroes because she was actually an extraordinarily eloquent person and very funny in many ways. And uh, I just thought she was just a deer, absolutely a deer. She she was. She was. She, and she uh, she you know and and for so many African American women, she, the symbolism of. of, of Number one, a woman, <laughs> and then also a, a black serving yeah. in Congress at that time, because there were only a handful of African Americans, no, right. exactly. uh, you yeah. know, eight yeah. or nine at that point. And then she ran for president, did she not? She, she did in, yes, in 1972, exactly. yeah. the, the, and and she, yeah. she, I think she won something like 10 percent of of the delegates at the convention on the first vote. So it Funny was. Because it, I remember, I remember talking to a friend of mine who was all excited in the 19, I guess it was 80 election or 84 election about Run Jesse Run, and mm. I'm like, buddy, this is old news. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen old this hat. before. Yeah, I, you know, we had Shirley Chisholm in my day. <laughs> she, uh, it, well, it, what's interesting uh, about her, if you if you get a little bit more into her career, that the. It, she was fond of saying that uh, I, I had two liabilities uh, as a politician. Uh, the first was being black, and the second, and by far the more consequential, was being a woman. Yeah. And sure and it, it's interesting. The presidential run really uh, roiled uh, the, uh, the the congressional black caucus of yeah. which she was a part. Mm-hmm. And uh, she had a reputation for being someone who would be a bridge builder. And 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 try and reach out across to different groups, different ethnic groups, Hispanics uh, who were uh, a large constituency in her Brooklyn district and liberal whites. And Mm -hmm. and it divided her from a a lot of uh, African-American members in the House who also were were, you know, that. Upset that a woman had had somewhat upstaged them. Right, exactly. Um, exactly. But this, that that core group, uh, and, and there are others. Pat Schroeder uh, is elected to the, to the House in, Schroeder, the, uh, exactly. in the early 1970s. Uh-huh. Really, kind of formed a feminist vanguard. And for the last couple years in this time period, they're pushing up uh, against resistance from a, a group of uh, traditionalists uh, who were still. Uh, kind of adhering to this integrationist idea that you 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 come in and work your way up and and we're not going to we're not going to push women's issues. Mm-hmm. The the feminists wanted to create a caucus for women's issues in the early 1970s, mm-hmm. and they met informally to to talk about those ideas. But the the women who still kind of held the the levers of of power among women in Congress, uh, Lenore Sullivan of uh, of Missouri. Uh, and uh, uh, Julia Butler Hansen of, uh, of uh, Washington, uh, both very interesting figures. I could go into stories mm-hmm. about them. Opposed the idea really? because, again, it was something that was going to separate women out from the general population. Uh-huh. And it wasn't until those women retired and left uh, the House that 
you really had momentum for the creation of a Congressional Women's Caucus. Yeah, I see. Yeah, I see. That's interesting. So let, let's go on to the last, you know, I've taken up so much of your time. This is fascinating, though. Also, it's very rich in the sense that it's reminding me of all these people that I had forgotten about, like Bella Abzug and Shirley Chisholm. And I'm going to ask you about another one in just a second. Sure. Um, and the fourth chapter, then, in the fourth area is Assembling, Amplifying, and Ascending Recent Trends Among Women in Congress, 77 to 2006. And I'd like you to start, if you can, I don't mean to put mm -hmm. you on the spot, but I'm from Kansas. Sure. Start talking about Nancy Landon Kassebaum, who I believe is the first woman elected to the Senate who had not had a husband who was in the Senate. Am I wrong about that? It's you. You're correct. Yeah. You're correct. She's the first. She's the first to to be elected without having succeeded right. a husband. Now her um, her grandfather, of course, or her father, had been a presidential candidate. Right, Alf Landon. Yeah, in, and had in been, the been trounced by Franklin Delano Roosevelt <laughs> in the greatest <laughs> landslide of all time, if I recall correctly. But nonetheless, that's right. Yeah, nonetheless. So, how does she? Is she emblematic of this era? I think so. Uh, she her, she has an interesting career. She's elected as a Republican from uh, Kansas, and she works her way onto uh, some uh, premier committees in the Senate, uh, the Foreign Relations Committee, and. Uh, uh, Again, it, it, this era is one in which, uh, for a number of reasons, I, I guess I would define it kind of if we've talked about apprenticeship in the earlier, in the, in the second and third eras, this is really kind of when women come into a mature phase of, of institutional development. Mm -hmm. They, they kind of have fully integrated into the institution in a, in a number of aspects, uh, and and Kassebaum would certainly um, – uh, embody that. Mm -hmm. uh, women at this point are represented on uh, most of the major committees, yeah. um, at least the early stage of this era, and, yeah. and they have a range of legislative interests. One of the things that sets this era off, too, is that finally in 1977, you have a core group, a, a bipartisan group of Republicans and, and Democrats mm -hmm. form the, the Congressional Caucus for Women's Issues. Yeah, right. And, and it, 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 it's a very successful uh, caucus in terms of pushing uh, women's health care issues, um, economic opportunity issues, um, sexual discrimination in the workplace type issues. Uh -huh. um, and it's, 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 a, it's a defining part of this period. What's also interesting is that in the early 1970s, you have as – the, as the women's rights movement changes social perceptions of what's acceptable for women to do in terms of a career, in terms of advancing into politics, if that's what they choose, and generally in terms of working outside the home, right. you have more women entering local politics. Right. And you – Whereas in 1970, roughly 4% of all the state legislature positions in the nation – and you're talking about uh, something on the order of 7,000 positions mm -hmm. – only 4% are held by women. Yeah. But if you jump ahead to the, the late 1990s after we've had the, the women's civil rights – the women's rights movement yeah. and women have integrated more into the workforce, about a quarter of women – now serve in state legislatures, right, right. and that kind of becomes the the experiential uh, ground 
for them to move on into uh, higher office, uh, move into the House, U.S. House, move into the U.S. Senate. And so you have more women gaining local political experience, and that's terribly important. Women also also organize themselves in terms of uh, campaign uh, funding. Uh, that was a major issue for some of the women in uh, the 1950s and 1960s. They had no money to be able to mount a major campaign. Mm-hmm. And so in the 1980s, you see the creation of uh, political action committees. Uh, Emily's List would be uh, one of them. Um, and um, and they began to fund uh, candidates. Mm-hmm. So more experience, more money. In 1992, we have the the year of the woman Mm -hmm. uh, in which the number of women in Congress uh, is essentially doubled during the 1992 election. Really? Uh, It's it's an explosion. Uh, I believe 27 or 28 women are elected to to Congress. And and so women become uh, an important political bloc um, in both parties uh-huh. um, at that point. Uh-huh. And, and what's interesting is since then, we haven't had a, 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 as great a, 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 an explosion in any one election, but eight to, roughly eight to ten women on average have been elected each new Congress. And so uh, roughly now, uh, when the book was published uh, just last uh, well, when it went to press and 2006, before the 2006 elections, mm-hmm. we'd had 229 women serve in That's the entire history, and now we're up into the mid-240s. That's and if you, if you want to look at a, a middle point, 1990 is the middle point for the history of women in Congress. More women yep. have been elected after 1990 yep. than had served between 1917 and 1990. So we're, we're still – Part of this uh, this kind of uh, there's still a large gender revolution, you know, uptick in the number of women being elected to Congress. We're still sort of on the upslope. I, I think we are. It, it's it it kind of happens gradually statistically. I, I we're we're roughly we have 90 women in Congress now, uh, which is roughly 16, 17 percent of the membership of the entire Congress. We have 74 women in the House and uh, 16 women in the Senate. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's interesting is we, we, we're, we're now entering a, a, a pattern or phase where it, it seems like we're, we have more women who are gaining experience in the House mm-hmm. who are then moving on to a Senate career, right. which is, right. is, again, it's typical of, of men. Uh-huh. Yeah, no. I mean, I can see how in general that the pattern of women who make it to Congress, how their careers become more similar over time to those of their male counterparts, which is to say they begin in local government, go to state government, then go to Congress, then maybe go to the Senate, and then you know they either end their career there or they seek higher national office. So in that sense, there's been a kind of regularization of the process, which I think is all to the good because you get more qualified people that way, which isn't to say a widow of a Congress person wouldn't be a completely qualified person, but obviously you know, someone that spent their whole life in local or or state, or and then of course national politics is going to be extraordinarily well qualified, right? Um, yeah, right. I, mean, I think Nancy Pelosi. Or, I mean, there's just a whole bunch of people you could give examples of, of, of people that have pursued careers like this. And 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 that's a, you you point out the, the the prime example is in you know January 2007, Nancy Pelosi becomes Speaker of the House. I mean, you just missed I, that, didn't you? It, 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 the book went to the book went to press just months before that. Uh, timing is everything, Marshall. Uh, but it, it, it's uh, we we, we uh, it, it, and her career is fascinating as well. I you know she she has roots in. 
Congress going back to her father, right. who was a member, uh, who's, who represented a Maryland district, a Baltimore district, Thomas Mayor of Alexander, and was Mayor of Baltimore, right? Mayor, yeah. Mayor of Baltimore, yeah. and uh, so she has a, a, an institutional sense of, of how the place works, yeah. and and her career in the leadership is unprecedented. No other woman has held the top any of the top three positions that right. she held. She held the whip position, uh, which is kind of the, the vote getter, yep. uh, and she held the leader position for the party, and, and now, of course, she's Speaker of the House. Yeah, that's absolutely incredible. I, yeah, no, it's it's truly remarkable, and we may soon have a – I mean, I my tea leaves aren't very good. They're actually in my tea, but we may have a female <laughs> president soon, so who can tell? Anyway, right. uh, Matt Wasniewski, thank you very much. We've taken up a lot of your time. I want to congratulate you and the uh, Office of History and Preservation for um, for producing this book. You might want to take the opportunity, again, I don't want to put you on the spot, mm-hmm. to mention uh, the names of the people that helped you on this book. Oh, now, can certainly. You do that? I'm, yes. I'm, I'm glad you, you'd allow me to do it. Uh, yeah. We have a, a, a great staff. Uh, I, uh, on Women in Congress, uh, we had uh, Kathleen Johnson, mm-hmm. uh, who was uh, a co-writer, mm-hmm. uh, and she runs our oral history program. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have uh, Laura Turner, who mm-hmm. was a, also a co-writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, Aaron Ramada, who was a co-writer and also uh, d- does a lot of our uh, our uh, web uh, content mm-hmm. and uh, Farah Elliott, who was the chief and curator of our office, lent mm-hmm. a lot of support. Robin Reeder, who is the archivist, uh, also lent a lot of support. We we ID manuscript collections mm-hmm. in there, and that was all Robin's help. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I give a, a thanks to a former colleague who uh, kind of oversaw the beginnings of the project before he moved on to a, a job at National Archives. Kenneth Cotto, mm-hmm. uh, who's a political science and uh, kind of brought up a, a political science bent to it. Well, obviously, it's a terrific team because you produced a terrific book. And I must say, you know, one of the things, just as a final note, one of the things that I think historians don't do enough of is collaborative work. We're not very good at it. Um, and no, that's... We, we live in an era <laughs> in which uh, the benefits of collaboration should be obvious to anybody who uses Wikipedia or any of the other kind of social networking tools. And, and uh, much easier now, yeah, too. Yeah, oh, I know it. And it's, it's extraordinarily easy to, to actually work with people, you know, all over the nation and the world. But we just don't seem to be able to wrap our minds around it. But apparently you at the Office of History and Preservation have, and we can see the result of your good labors in this book. So, Matt, I just want to thank you again for talking to us and and wish you well. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Okay, good enough. All right, take care, Matt. Bye-bye. Thanks, Marshall. Sure, bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Matt Wasniewski about his new book, Women in Congress, 1917 to 2006. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History, signing off for this week. Hope to talk to you next week. Bye-bye.